And now, a word from our sponsors. Summertime is here, and the best way to beat the heat is with these great deals at MythMark.com. Join the adventure with sisters Emma and Olivia as they journey through the land of imagination in search of Yoon, the magical unicorn, in David K. Montoya's The Missing Unicorn and the Land of the Zombie Fairies. Or travel with poet Christopher Bice as he shares his thoughts on love, death, inspiration, and madness in Escaping the Darkness, Running from My Dreams. If fantasy romance is more your speed, join Celeste and Merrick as they figure out how to defeat the evil Ren doll while they figure out the plans of the elders in Stephanie J. Vardy's The Chosen. Like comic books? We got them too! Hot Off the Press is American Smash by Alan Russo and David K. Montoya for $4.99. Or enjoy our older releases like The Hunter's Exodus for only $2.99. Also, just in time for the summer are these other hot deals like Zoe M. Montoya's Uni Whale t-shirt, blue for boys and pink for girls, only $33.99. Or Lupus Bits the Podcast shirt for $27.99. For all our art lovers, we have something for you too with our prints and lithographs. Check out the Ed Bickford collection for $15 each, or enjoy the art of Vincent May for $15. We have everything you'll need to stay inside and beat the summertime heat at MythMart.com. For more information, go to www.MythMart.com. Call us at 870-557-2612 or email sales at MythMart.com. And now, enjoy this free JZO Modcast show. Welcome to the Grindhouse Sleaze. I am your host, Alan Russo. I'm Dave Montoya. All right. Today we're going to talk about Halloween, the original, and Rob Zombie's Halloween. First, I want to apologize for not having a podcast last week uh, due to COVID and all that crap. We got a little bit busier at work than we expected. So I just want to get an apology for not having one last week. Yeah, totally. That's one of the things about working in medical. You and I both working in medical is there the insurgence of COVID, you know, the variant. And, uh, you know, things are just getting more hectic now. Yeah, no kidding. All right. First, we're going to dive into the original Halloween. Everybody knows it was the beginning of the slasher genre. Mm-hmm. Or technically, yes and no. A couple of slashers came out before that, but they weren't considered slashers. Most people don't know. It was a low budget film. I think they made it for what hundred thousand, something yeah, like that. It was considerably low budget, and they did it in like what thirty days. Filmed the whole thing. Yeah, I know that production was like really, you know, hustle. Right. 
Well, I mean, even the leaves they used throughout the movie were the same leaves. After each scene that leaves were needed, they picked them all up to reuse them again. I didn't know that. But Hold oh on. yeah. Let me mute this real fast. Our board meeting. What the listeners don't know is that Russo and I are both members of the board of directors for the Jason Darkmouth Company. And we have a private Facebook chat with the, the directors. And it's starting to explode right now. And him and I are both getting the messages and it's coming through both sides. So I'm hearing like triple rings every time <laughs> there's a message come through. Oh, I gotta love technology. Yeah. Um, so, so anyway, back down to it, you know, like I said, extremely low budget. They reused a lot of the same stuff. And if you're a fan of the film, everybody knows. It was a William Shatner mask they used for Michael. Yes. They just cut out the eyes and painted it white. That's all they did. And, you know, some interesting things, background things that most people don't know is, you know, everybody notices the car that he steals at the beginning of the movie at the high school and a few other places in the film. And the one place that gets overlooked is when Sheriff Brackett and Dr. Loomis are standing outside the hardware store and they're talking. And if you look in the background, that same car drives right past them. Really? On the street. Yeah. Now, I noticed that the other day. Just uh, jumping back to it, you know, what you were talking about, low budget. I knew it was low budget. So it was for $325,000. That's what the budget was. Okay. Um, which in I'm today's... Trying to figure that. In today's market is like $47 million. And to do a $47 million studio movie is unheard of in today's... It's just unheard of. Right. You know, most of the time it's like Unless... $500 million. <laughs> right. I mean, unless you're doing a low budget film. Um, so at $47,000, or excuse me, $47,000, $325,000 is what it cost. Uh, they made $47,160,000 in return. And that's why it started the, the slasher genre, because the return was insane. Oh, yeah. But you got to look at it some things too that actually kicked off a lot of the low budget films that came out in the eighties. Yes. I mean, Wes Craven, you know, did a lot of low, low budget films in the eighties. Yes. But John Carpenter, he did a lot of low budget films in the eighties too, even in the seventies. Well, see, and I think that's the key to horror films there. When you start pumping in all this money, it's it just it what's what's the old saying? Um, necessity is the mother of creativity. Right. You know, when you have a low budget, you have to be creative more so than normal. And I think that comes out better, especially in a horror film. Because oh, yeah. quite frankly, 
especially with today's movies, I think a good low budget horror film is better than your Hollywood blockbuster horror films, which have oh, been typically really bad. Definitely. I mean, you look at this one, you know, like I said, low budget. It didn't have a whole lot of blood, but who cares? You know, the way I see it, it's the lurking. Yeah. Him just kind of watching. In the tempo of the movie. Right. That made it really creepy. And one of the other things, too, you know, there are certain parts that if you're not paying attention, you won't see Michael in the background. Oh, yeah. Until the very last moment. Yeah, he's he's but he's there. He's lurking around. Yeah. Right. You know, because when they're in, when she's in the Wallace house and, you know, she's standing at the top of the steps. And if you look in the background in the darkness, you saw him creep into the light slowly before she finally turns around and sees him. And then he goes to stab her and she falls off the balcony downstairs. Most people don't notice that because it's that jump scare that everybody sees, but right. they don't see the progression to that jump scare. It's about the, it's, how do I say this? It all comes down to the director and his way to, to give direction and the superior way that the actors follow the direction with the tempo of the music, because that's a big one, because I know John Carpenter also did. He did his own music for that too. Right. The, those three elements is what created that aviance of horror. It just, it was, it was perfect. It was nailed down perfectly for something that was never done. He just, he hit a home run right out the front, you know, right out the gate. He stepped oh, yeah. up the bat and went boom. <laughs> right. He was one of the first, you know, to use the steady cam in more. Right. One of his cameramen, you know, they strapped the camera down to him and did shots. One of the interesting things is when they walk around the house, the very beginning uh-huh. of the film, that is one continuous shot. Really? Yeah. That whole two minutes was one continuous shot with no retakes. See, right out the gate, man. Right out the gate. It's just... Right. I don't think they realized and, what they had. I don't know. Maybe they did, but... Well, I mean, it was John Carpenter. He, he was used to low-budget films, you know, not really going anywhere. Because when he did Assault on Precinct 13, it didn't do well. Right. So, getting into it, when Michael walks into the kitchen, opens the drawer and grabs the knife, uh-huh. that's, that's Deborah Hill's hand. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that. I I didn't know that. And they used two people for Michael. They did? Yep. Because when they take the mask off of him uh-huh. at the top of the stairs before he gets shot, that's a completely different actor. That's not oh, Nick Castle. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. And, you know, and of course, in the original script and even in the credits, it doesn't say Michael Myers. He's listed as the shape. The shape. Yep. He never had 
a name until people associated the shape with Michael Myers. Interesting. Because when Dr. Loomis said, you know who walked out of here, they never said it was Mike. It was just an assumption. Interesting. Everybody assumed that's who it was. Right. But, you know, later on, you know, he said it and stuff like that. And one of the biggest plot holes was why did he go back to Haddonfield? Yeah. Yeah, they never explained that. And the original title wasn't Halloween. It was the babysitter murders. Really? Yeah. I I think they (laughs) I think it was a good idea that they changed it to Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, but like I said, they never explain why he came back. Not until part two. I mean, right. And you know, John Carpenter had no hand in part two, except for as a producer. See, the funny thing is, is like and I know people are going to like groan when I say this, but I stand by my word. I thought part two was a superior film to part one. I really did. It was an aspects. I don't what know. I like about- oh, I was going to say is I think maybe because I actually watched Halloween two for the first time I was working at a hospital, you know, and it was Halloween night. And, you know, I, I was like, <laughs> Why couldn't I work with nurses like that? Come on. You know? (laughs) Well, my thing is, with Halloween 2, it's a direct sequel to the first one. And that's what I love about it. It picks up. It is like, right. you can watch one and two all together, and it's a perfect flow. Right. Because the very end of one... You know, they don't show Lori getting into the ambulance at the end of one. And they added that in two. So it's a perfect pickup. I mean, even in the second one, they don't really say that it's his sister. And that's why he came back. Was it until three? No, four. When, When was it established? It was officially established in four. Okay. Because in two, the only thing that made it work is the knife in the drawing that says sister. Ah, yes, yes, yes. So other than that, they never said she was his sister. You just assumed that's what it was. Right. That's the interesting part about it. Because up until part four, she wasn't his sister. Because there was no, nothing saying saying it. Right, right. You know, it was just the the viewer assumed that's what it meant. And the one thing I like about part two is they actually gave it an ending. Yes, you it know, did. It know, could have ended right there. Right. Because at the end of part one, he gets up and walks away. After being right. shot six times, and they just kind of end it, which was a cool ending because it sets it up for part two. But in part two, you know, they burning the whole nine yards, and so you know they could have ended it right there and been done with it. Yes. And when they did part four, 
it was a neat way they brought him back because that actually brought in the aspect of supernatural versus him being human. Yeah, because in the, I mean, basically in the first two movies, you didn't get that supernatural vibe. Right. You're just like, for me, it was like, he's so psychotic. He's so crazy that he's too crazy to die. He doesn't even realize that he's dead. He's that crazy kind of thing. Right. Well, and then when they talked about, you know, Dr. Loomis shooting him six times, he might not have hit a vital organ. Yeah. I mean, you don't know where he was shot. You just know he was shot six times. Yeah, it was just a, a rapid, rapid fire right. shot. Right. It was kind of one of those, you don't know where he was shot. If it was a deathly shot and stuff like that. It makes it, it makes it interesting, you know, when they set up part two. Yeah, because and then now for you, uh, which one? Which one did you prefer, part one or part two? I'm stuck in the middle. Are you? Now, what is your yeah. favorite Halloween movie? Is it Rob Zombies, which we'll get to eventually? But I wouldn't say that one was my favorite. Uh-huh. But I would say it's a good adaptation. It's a good reboot. Probably my favorite would probably be two. It's solid. It is a solid movie, I feel. It is. But part two wouldn't be there if it wasn't for part one. Right, right. So that's why I'm on the fence. I mean, part two is more superior in aspects, but you can never go wrong with the original. Right. Now, I did. A, I peeked in real fast. I did a qu- little quick look because, of course, we skipped over four, which is interesting enough because uh, or we skipped over three, which is my daughter Zoe's and my son Jaden's favorite Halloween movie is uh, Season of the Witch, which is really. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, but I jumped over to four and four actually didn't have. That was the introduction to um, Danielle Harris's character. Right. Jamie. And you find out that Jamie is the daughter of Laurie Strode. Yeah. But that's that's really, there's no talk of uh, Laurie Strode in that film. So I think it was well, just the insinuation of two is what kind of just it led into that. Well, there is a quick mention of Laurie. And how her, you know, Danielle Harris, both of her parents died in a car accident. Yes. And there was a picture of Lori she looks at. And other than that, they don't talk about Lori. I mean, speaking of Danielle, we'll get to her a little bit in the remake. <laughs> like I said, they didn't really mention Lori except for that one quick bit in part four. Right. Which, just to uh, throw this out there, which I thought was kind of a cool homage. Now, the uh, Harris's character's name was Jamie Lloyd. And that was actually, they named her Jamie because of Jamie Lee Curtis. That was kind of an homage to Jamie Lee Curtis. Right. I just thought it was a cool homage. Okay, yep. go ahead. Okay. So, a lot of people, I was going to get back to this. You know, a lot of people hate part three and you can actually tie in aspects of part three to 
the rest of the series. Uh-huh. If you if you're paying attention, because it's part six, they talk about the curse the of Michael Myers. Yeah. Right. They talk about the druids, you know, how he was marked and all that mess. Well, you go back to part three and their whole reason for doing what they're doing is because of druid religion. Right. So that right there, well, kind of ties it in. Because with that being said, how do we know that Michael wasn't adopted? Because it never says it. No. I mean, you can just kind of assume that maybe he was adopted by the Myers family. Right. He might have been from Santa Mira. Who knows? I mean, that's just an assumption. And that's why he was marked. I mean, but then you're getting into a lot deeper shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the other thing, too, is how do we know, you know, Silver Shamrock was a mask maker? Right. They did costumes. So you can look at that aspect and maybe Michael, when he killed his sister in the original, got one of their costumes and it was a test run on what's happening in part three. Right. Now that would have made perfect sense. Right. And I mean, like I said, that's just a theory because of what they did to the masks in part three. So, you know, it's just kind of a theory that I've been kind of kicking around. That actually is a great theory. One of the, one of the questions I wanted to bring forward to you is what do you think, because it was very apparent, and the remake and, and Rob Zombie's envisioning of it. But in the original, what do you think was his motivation in killing his sister? I really don't know. I couldn't tell you. Because there was no inkling in, in the beginning of the movie up until he kills his sister that there was any type of, you know, sociopathic thoughts or behavior flying around in his head now of course they capitalize that in rob zombie's version um you know they they make him a little freako but in the original they don't they don't give you a lead that it just happens and you're like what was it what was the the drive was it something that you know there could have been so many different theories i mean when i did psych in in college we actually talked about that. They said that my professor said that he felt that the family was so tight niched that that angered Michael because, you know, the, the, he felt that he was, how do you put it? He wasn't part of the family because of his sister, you know, his sister overshadowed him. I'm like, that's a great theory, but there's no visual evidence to that theory. So I was just kind of throwing that out there as to what would be the motivating factor. I mean, the idea of, uh, what was it? When did Amityville come out? Right around the same time. Yeah. You know, and was it the same motivating factor? You know, because it's it's a horrible concept in reality to kill, well, number one, to kill at all, but to kill your own family. You know, that that is kind of like, that's that's where my mind went was, you know, just the horrid thought of murdering your own family. 
and you know a sibling killing a sibling that's that's really personal you know as right. to just as with the other people which again you could go into the psychology of it uh you know why did he kill the other people and we're still on you know number 1 you know what was the motivating factor behind all that that michael killed the you know the boyfriend and the random people but you notice he didn't kill the child remember when the child ran right. up, ran up to him yeah. he could have he could have simply killed the child but then he just, he just let it go you know they just ran off right so there's which a lot was of Tommy that was Tommy Doyle yeah i remember that i remember that which so, comes into play later right but if he would have killed Tommy then Lori would have never did the babysitting right so that would throw off the rest of the movie. Okay. I see that. I see that. Right. And then going along with your theory, you know, like, like you said, there's no reason for him to kill his sister. None. No. But you go back to my theory about part three. About the mask. It would yeah. make perfect sense about fried the mask. His, fried his brain. Yeah. Right. You know, whether it fried his brain or whatever. You know, if you use that theory, it works perfect because, you know, he doesn't kill the boyfriend in the original. The boyfriend runs out of the house. Right. You know, kind of made me wonder because when the boyfriend leaves, she goes, you're going to call me, right? He's like, yeah, sure. Like, you know, I got mine. So who cares at this point? Right. Right. You know, Dr. Loomis tried to explain it later about. He had the black eyes, the devil's eyes, and all that mess. You know, but he never, the way he explained it was like the switch got flipped and that was the end of it. Right. You know, he killed his sister, walks downstairs, walk outside, and his parents catch him. You know, he said, they talk about how he hasn't said anything in 15 years, yada, yada, yada. There's a lot of things that weren't explained. How did he get out of the asylum to get the car? That was never explained. Yeah, that wasn't, was it? No. I mean, they're driving up. They see him walking around. They're like, when did they let him just walk around? And then you get to the gate. The gate's broken. and But they never explained how the gate got broke. None of that. You know, it's just like they're talking about how they're going to transfer him. And then you come up on that. There's a lot of things that weren't explained in the original, but at the same time, you didn't need all that backstory for the progression of the film. Right. Well, at the time you didn't. Right. Because right. it's the first one. Right. Right. So all you needed to know at that point with it being the first one is Michael killed his sister, got sent to the loony bin. Right. Escaped from the loony bin. And now end up back in Haddonfield and kill all the babysitters. Right. That's all you needed to know. And also, one of the things that just popped into my head, too, was that they didn't really, other than Loomis, who did call him Michael, the uh, he was referred to as the boogeyman for most of the movie. Right. Which is interesting. Because it's, it, I don't know, it's like there's three three parts of Michael Myers, you know. You've got Michael Myers, the patient, which is viewed through Loomis. Then you've got 
the boogeyman, which is this almost supernatural character. And then I was about to say the figure, but that's our movie. Right. <laughs> the uh, what do they call the shape? The shape. the shape, the shape. So there's a there's different aspects. So I wonder in the point of writing, in the point of you know, character direction, do is that what it is? Is it three separate parts of Michael Myers? You see what I'm trying to say? Right. Because again, you know, because I, I'm I'm trying to dissect this in my head. Because in the beginning, of course, you see Michael Myers the child, then you see Michael Myers the the adult but then when he puts on that mask then he becomes the boogeyman he becomes the shape you know right which then again i can't help to say it but that okay guys we're gonna take a pause right here and we will pick up again next week i'm alan russo i'm dave montoya